This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with journalist Michelle Martin. I spoke with her on August 7, 2014, at the Chautauqua Institution in upstate New York. Download the MP3 of our produced show with Michelle Martin at onbeing.org. I, I'll, yeah, I'll watch it. Yeah. Well, I'll try to finish it. Yeah, exactly. Just just, you're in my hands. <laughs> Relinquish control. (laughs) Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome to this excellent week presented by the Department of Religion 2 o'clock interfaith lecture series. I'm Robert Franklin, director of the program of religion, and we have a few announcements. Audio recordings of today's lecture will be available at the amphitheater gazebo later this afternoon. Video discs may also be ordered at the gazebo and picked up later. Today, representatives are once again in front of the Hall of Missions to help you sign up for this week's Chautauqua Dialogues, a program that takes place every Friday at 3.30. Small groups meet each Friday at assigned venues to discuss the week's 2 o'clock interfaith lectures, but you must sign up in order to receive a location. As is the case every week, devotional services will be held this evening at 7 o'clock in all denominational houses, and all are welcome. Tonight, we also invite you to the Mystic Heart Evening Meditation, led by Carol McKiernan from 7.15 to 7.45 in the Main Gate Welcome Center. Remember to take your gate pass. Finally, we'd like to remind you that we simulcast this 2 o'clock interfaith lecture program to the Hall of Christ daily, which is always a comfortable place to be when it rains. (laughs) And these are the events sponsored by the Department of Religion. And now to present today's two o'clock program in the Hall of Philosophy, where this week we're focusing on the theme, Conversations on the American Consciousness. Today's distinguished guests are Krista Tippett, who among her many, many awards, Peabody Award-winning journalist, She recently received from the White House the National Humanities Medal. I checked the local Oklahoma paper, and they proudly declared Oklahoma native (laughs) Krista Tippett was at the White House to receive this medal. So, Krista, we we honor you for that. And also, we welcome for her first visit to Chautauqua NPR's Michelle Martin, Michelle, we loved you on Nightline, on ABC News, on Tell Me More, and all the wonderful work that you have done. You've been a great friend to many of us in the higher education community. I think of you as a fierce womanist with a mellifluous voice, and we welcome you. Welcome you to Chautauqua. You'll be pleased to know that immediately following this conversation, Krista will be doing a book signing on the porch of the Hall of Missions and that her books will be sold there as well. We're most grateful to the Joan Brown Campbell Department of Religion Endowment, which provides funding for this week's Interfaith Lecture Series. So now please join me in extending a very warm Chautauqua welcome to Krista Tippett and Michelle Martin. Thank you. So day four, and this is the day that I get to indulge in drawing out a contemporary and a comrade and an esteemed colleague in my field, 
Michelle Martin, and we're going to talk about the shifting American consciousness as it pertains to our world of journalism, and also about the wisdom she's gained um, about the world through her life and her work in this field. Although we, we did just set the ground rules that I'm, this is my interview and I'm in charge here. <laughs> If she gets out of control, I'm going to call her on it. Um, Michelle Martin has spent more than 25 years as a journalist. She's worked in print, on television, and now in radio. She's covered state and local politics for the Washington Post, the U.S. Embassy bombings in Africa for Nightline, and she's been the White House correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Born in Brooklyn, New York, Michelle Martin studied sociology at Radcliffe College at Harvard University and has also done graduate work at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. She joined National Public Radio in 2006 as the creator and host of Tell Me More, which broadcast its last show on August 1, 2014. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So did you spend your whole childhood in Brooklyn? I did. Okay. I did. My father was a firefighter. Your father was a firefighter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay we, we are a family of people who respond to bells ringing. My, uh, <laughs> my, my aunt is a police officer. She was one of the first black women to become a detective in the New York oh. City Police Department. My uncles, two of my uncles were cops. Whenever I get called for jury duty, I'm up there for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And was there a um, religious, spiritual background to your childhood? You know, you know, I've heard people use the phrase uh, culturally Jewish, not religious. So I would say culturally Christian, but not disciplined. Um, in a sense, I think it was really more of a function of the kind of the chaos of the way we were raised. Uh, we, we were churchgoers periodically. Like we were a lot of things periodically, and it really wasn't until I became an adult that I started seeking kind of a specific uh, discipline hmm. to that, um, to to those a specific frame for those ideas. I went to an Episcopal high school. I went to St. Paul's School, which was uh, affiliated is was is affiliated with the Episcopal Church. Uh, later served on the board there, and um, kind of it's interesting. You know, my father passed away in 2010, and you sent me a beautiful note. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that, yeah. but thank you for that. And, and going through his belongings, and I know that a lot of us have had this experience of going through our parents' belongings and finding things out about them that we did not know in the course of doing that. And I came across my father's uh, the, the confirmation program. My father was confirmed in the Episcopal Church as an adult. And the fact that he saved that, the program all those years, plus the cards, the congratulatory cards that he received from his relatives, told me something about how important it was to him. Um, but I did not ever have the chance, unfortunately, to ask him why and what it meant to him. Um, so I think, you know, I would say culturally Christian in the way that so many of us are, particularly those of us who are African-American, you know, you are kind of steeped in the story. It's mm. fundamental to you, even if you don't have a particular label to place on it at any given time. Yes, um, but I'd also say, oh, sorry, take my earrings out. Okay. <laughs> sorry. Radio demerit. <laughs> 
Steve, I'm back in my studio all by myself where I'm so happy, and I don't even have to be sitting up straight. I wouldn't I care. Know, right? Yeah. Isn't it nerve-wracking? I'm, I'm so really nervous right now. Radio. I'm so frightened. Like, okay, no. like, how can you talk to you? Like, you talk to a million people every week. I say, yeah, but I don't see them. You know? They're, like, not right there. <laughs> like, I'm so... I know, and now I have to take my so earrings terrifying. off. Okay. I know. Um, <laughs> but what, what I was going to say is... Um, uh, it, j- journalists often, if they are, if they do have religious lives, also are very quiet about that. You know, might confess to be to being culturally Christian or culturally Jewish, but not the rest of it. Uh-huh. What is it? Is it my hair? See, okay. I said these microphones are invented by men for men. That's true. Really, they're not for people with hair. I don't know what it is. I don't. I don't take my earrings out. I can't. No, can't take them out. Sorry. Oh, that's what it is. Can you mute this? Do all right. Mm mm. Here you go. That's good. Yeah. See, if we yeah. had our big cans, we'd be all right. Sorry. All right, it's not, it wasn't even me. That's all right. right. <laughs> I deserve that. <sighs> all right. Okay. Anyway, um, you're okay. saying. Well, let me say, I want to talk about journalism. Sure. Mm-hmm. I'm really aware that we're talking a week after your show was canceled at NPR. You're still at NPR. And also that this we're having this conversation now, but we'll probably be putting this, uh, this on, the, on broadcast on the air in a couple of months. And so I don't want us to eulogize. We are going to talk about Tell Me More and, and, um, and about the state of our industry. But I, I want us to, to really be speaking present tense and looking forward, um, you know, talking in the broadest sense about what you've learned. Um, and also, I'm just going to note here that it's rare to be we're two of the very few women hosts in public radio, so here we are. Um, yeah, and we get to have a conversation with each other. Um, it, what, how did you first get into journalism? What drew you? Interestingly enough, it was that um, in college, because I think like a lot of people of my era, we all assumed we were going to law school, whether we wanted to go or not. And you know, for some, I don't know how that happened that it, we were all supposed to go to yeah, law what school. What year were you born? Can you? Uh, 59. 59. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. yeah, we were all supposed yeah, to go. I don't true. know why we were all supposed to go, but we were all supposed to go. And uh, I started writing for the Harvard Crimson, and I was just, I just fell in love with it and did not take it uh, seriously as a career. It was really more just something I felt like I had to do, in part because I had an off-campus job in Boston, and I would go into town, you know, from Cambridge, and I would hear about things that were going on among the people that I was working with that I'd never read in the paper. And it was, at the time, there was a series of assaults on young black girls in the Alston, you know, Brighton neighborhood and in Roxbury, and it was somebody, like a serial sort of predator preying on these girls, and I was never reading about it in the paper, and I just thought that was crazy. And you know, in the arrogance of your youth, you think, well, I'll fix this. 
you know. <laughs> yeah. And I wrote my little story for the Harvard Crimson, and you know, and it was fascinating. It was just all those things opened up at once for me. Like, for example, I called the Boston Police Department to ask for a comment about this series of assaults, and this is the, this is I, I'm quoting accurately. When I called up and I said I'd like to have a comment from you, he said, "What am I talking to?" And I said, what do you mean? What am I talking to, black or white? Really? So, you know, I said, well, I'm you're black. Does it matter? And he said, yes, it does. And I, and, and I don't remember anything after that. I don't remember anything about what his comment was after that. But just to give you a sense of what... The, the, or what the environment was at the time where people mm-hmm. felt like that they could just tell you, ask you, you know, to your face, like what, or over the phone. And I, I don't know if a lot of you, I'm sure you know my friend and my colleague Gwen Eiffel, who worked for the Boston Herald. She also went to college in Boston at Simmons College, and she tells this story about people leaving racial slurs on her desk and thing when she, she was a food writer, at the, you know, and people writing the N-word on her desk and things of that sort. So it was one of those, it, it, was, that, it was that time. And I just think that once I kind of did my piece for the, for the Crimson and I had people stopping me and saying, I didn't know about that. And I think I got hooked on that. I got hooked on that. I didn't know about that. Yeah. And so for me, that was the driver, was telling people something that they didn't already know. And, I, and you know, so there it is. And so, you know, I started in... I still hear that noise. Is that... I can't see you much. Is it, you okay? think it's me? You what really think it? it's... All right, I'm going to try, but you're going to be responsible for putting them back on. Yeah. All right? If I take my earrings off, you're, it's your Are job. You sure it's the well, it's it's worth okay. a try. It's gotta I'll be. try. Okay. Because I never take my earrings on, All even right. even when I gave birth to my children. So here they, okay. I wouldn't take them off. Oh, okay. For the anesthesiologist, no, I was like, no. Okay. Okay. If we if there anything else goes wrong, we're just gonna rely on these. Okay. 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 So. So I also, I mean, I was born in 1960, mm-hmm. and I also got into print initially. And, you know, when I went to college, I started reading the New York Times religiously. And um, I, I'm sure you feel this way, too. We would never have imagined back then that in our lifetimes we would see the decline of newspapers. Um, no, growing up incredible. in New York, which is a three-newspaper town, I mean, yeah. my parents had three newspapers in the house always. It never yeah. would have occurred to me, No. And it is shocking, and it's still shocking to me, but I also just in the last few years realized how incredible it is that, let's say those of us who love the New York Times, every morning we read this thing that at the top said, all the news that's fit to print. How absurd, (laughs) you know? But, I mean, what you're pointing out is it, it wasn't true, it was never true, and there are so many things that we can bemoan about the loss of newspapers as we've known them, but that awareness that there's so much more story and reality is essential. I mean, that's what you were seeing. Well, I, I have very, as you would imagine, I have mixed feelings, as, as I'm sure you do too. I mean, the decline of the big newspaper is similar to like the decline of the department store. Yeah. Where you could find, you know, a little bit of a lot of things, let's say, and now it's boutiques, and everybody's, you know, people are too cool to go to a department store because they want to go to this boutique that nobody knows about but them. But the problem is that there is no gathering place for us all to find out 
things that we all would benefit from knowing. And yeah. that's the, that is the tension for me. And don't you think that's what we have to create now somehow? I mean, that's the next innovation. We have to try, but we have to want to. I mean, what, what, yeah. um, on the one hand, I am very interested in, I think my work has been of attention of, on the one hand, validating the experiences of people who are not always heard from and letting them know they're not crazy, but also connecting people who otherwise do not meet. I mean, I think that's your... You want, what's the show? That's ambiance. Ambiance. <laughs> so, so I think both and. The, the question then becomes... I mean, I remember when I was working in New York. I worked in New York. I, was in, uh, I worked in a television... Well, I worked at ABC for, what, like 13 years or something like that. And I was working on a program there. And I would go up to New York quite often to, 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 to film the... the you know, interstitial segments, right? The studio segments were all filmed in New York. And I remember going to get my hair cut once at this place in, in a very nice salon that geared toward women of color, African-American women. And the girl who was washing my hair said, well, let me know when you have the black segments on because oh, those are the only ones I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And, you know... And I remember this, you know, this kind of swoony feeling coming over me, like, oh, God, I'm just trying to get my hair cut, but now I have to educate this girl about why she's wrong, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I was trying to kind of sort of gently suggest to her that that's just not right. You know, you can't, that's, you just can't live in your bubble. But obviously, a lot of people think they can, or they, do they not? I mean, this is partly what's problem. The problem with our media today is that people can select their bubble and not come out of it. And, yeah, and and we're we're choosing that. We're validating that by our choices. And so the question then becomes: is how how do we persuade people to come out of their bubble? And I mean, so you know, you know one thing that um, that disturbed me as I was getting ready to interview you, and you know, just steeping myself in the show and in things written about the show, and even in the way NPR describes the show. Um, or, <clears throat> you know, it, or, or it'd be described as an NPR program aimed at minorities. And, you know, I think what you do in your journalism on NPR is you, you I mean, I really think you followed that thread that you, that, you, that you pulled out those years ago, that you want to tell more of the story. So it's not at all that you don't have mainstream you know, white voices or, you know, some of the same kinds of intellectuals who are on other programs, but you, you also, you, you bring a, an array of voices in that reflect the array of who we are. And there seems to be something really troubling at the idea that because, you know, you are an African-American woman, and I, and I think that's the inference that's being drawn, you know, that it's a program aimed at minorities, but whereas a so many of the programs, and let's just say on public radio in particular, which are hosted by white men, are for everybody. Well, I, I know I agree with you. I find that very annoying. Like, how is it that you know white people are universal, but the yeah. rest of us are, are are not? Like, it's like, you know, like white people get to be like crunchy, every universal peanut butter, but we're always the crunchy. You know, I mean, what is that? You know, why is that? I feel like I'm very mainstream. I had a woman once complain about the music on the program, and she said it was, I don't remember what she said. It was something insulting, I don't remember. But it was something about the music of the program, about how it wasn't, you know, mainstream enough or something of that sort. I said, I started laughing. I said, lady, I went to Harvard. My husband's on the symphony board. 
I don't know how much more mainstream you want to get. You know, what, what, what does that mean? That just, your tastes are not universal. Like, it, 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 this is the part that it just, it, it annoys me. It's almost like people get to, that is a, that's privilege, isn't it? You get to universalize yourself and decide that you're everybody and these other people are different. That's privilege. Yeah. And I just don't, I don't agree with that. Um, I think that what I try to do is just exactly, well, thank you. <laughs> but I mean, what I try to do is exactly what you said, is kind of pick up the loose ball. What's the side of the story that isn't obvious? Like, for example, during the beginning of the, the you know, conflict between you know, Ukraine and Russia, one of the segments that we did was for, we had a Russian Orthodox priest and a Ukrainian Orthodox priest in the studio. And I said to them, what's your job at a time like this? How, who, who are you in this? Yeah. And one of the things that they both pointed out was how much intermarriage there is between Ukrainians and Russians. In fact, one of the priests was married, who the Russian Orthodox priest was married to a woman of Ukrainian heritage. And realizing that's what happens on borders, right? Is that's what intermarriage is quite common. And that was the first I had heard of that or even thought about that. And I said, of course, that's quite true. And so, so I guess, I mean, was that for minorities? Yeah. Was that, that's the part that annoys me. But I, I don't know. Look, it's our broader discomfort with race. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's you know, what was it that, I said, was it Condoleezza Rice called it our birth defect? I don't know if she, it's our birth defect. Yeah. You know, it's that, which isn't to say that I feel defected because I don't, but the circumstances by which people, particularly of African descent, and also I would say by Asian descent, who came here under duress and really under, Circumstances which were different from people who came by choice, even if the choice was pressure, starvation, and you know poor economic conditions, who came here under duress um, is something that we have not really come to terms with in a way that we can commonly talk about. And so I think that you know when people say things like "I don't even see color," "I don't see race," and I always want to go, "What's wrong with my, what's wrong with it that we can't see it?" Right. I like mine. I'm, not, I'm good. I, I like my color. I'm fine with it. You can see it. I, I don't. It's, it's. We don't say that about other things, other groups, other things. Like I remember, you know, where we we go to the the beach. We go to the beach in the summer on the Delaware shore, and there are a lot of people who put you know flags on their porches. And I see a lot of Irish flags from the Irish, you know, the the Irish Republic. I see a lot of flags from Italy. People are just declaring their heritage, and nobody says, "I don't see that." Right. <laughs> and, and don't you think that's it's about our discomfort and it's also about something that's come up you know this week in the conversations here that um, journalism journalists so let me just say I think the context of this conversation is you and I are two people in the field talking yes. about how we're going to recreate the, you know how, the work we have to do um, because every all of our institutions are being recreated and reinvented the problem that um the same destructive, let's say, religious voices or racial voices um, uh, get so much airtime. You know, I mean, it, it came up in the context of this week at Chautauqua with Richard Rodriguez. You know, he was talking about where are the Christians, where are the churches when you have children in despair at the Mexican American border. And you know, I mean, I know, and I think that's a valid question to ask in our culture, but I also know, and I think you know, that there are a lot of Christians and a lot of churches and a lot of people of different faith out there, but the cameras get pointed at these ugly, terrified, hateful 
voices and people, and they get pointed at them over and over again. I agree with you, and I'm always puzzled by that. I mean, I know that, you know, on my last show on August 1st, um, one of the people that I had on was a, 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 a rabbi in Washington, D.C., Orthodox rabbi in Washington, D.C., and obviously one of the reasons that we called him was to ask the same question, what's your job at a time like this yeah. when there's so much going on, you know, in Gaza and the Middle East and you know, part of what he said, and I'm not going to quote him in a way that he deserves, was to say that part of my job is to speak to people's higher, a higher purpose at a time like this. And um, part of the reason I felt it was my job to put on voices like that. I mean, one of the things he said to me is that so much of the coverage of religion is either infantile or incendiary. Yeah. Yeah. It's... It's true. It's either, it's either infantile in this kind of this, forgive me, local news, because I know that's an important and hard job, but it's either, isn't it interesting that those people do that? You know, wow, look at their funny customs, you know. <laughs> their religion is for weirdos, school yeah, of journalism. Yeah. It's yeah. either that or yeah. it, they mean well, but it's still quaint, annoying. Yeah. And then, or it's incendiary, people who are deliberately provocative, people who are burning Korans, people like that. Who is a, I mean, these people who are doing all this agitating in New York against the, the so-called Ground Zero mosque, which, by the way, was nowhere near Ground Zero, yeah. were people who were, you, you couldn't tell me right now what their job is, what, they, what standing do they have, what is their, what, what accomplishments have they, do they have that would cause people to follow them? other than that they're racist and loud. And so, you know, I don't know why that is. I confess to you, I, I have been in this business, you and I have been in this business a long time, and I, I continue to be puzzled by why. Yeah, and I also, that. it's appalling to me that, um, that journalists make mis- mistakes and sloppy generalizations about religious people and about religious tradition that they would never let themselves make or that some editor would correct them about if it were political or, or economic. Um, that is true. And I, but I think it's in part because... Well, I don't know. I think it's in a way like similar to race. I think it's kind of the false doctrine of politeness in that people act as if they don't notice it. It somehow will go away. Hmm. And, I mean, this is where, you know, the whole question of race, people saying, I don't see race, I don't see color. It's a false doctrine of politeness. It, they mean well, but yeah. it's actually, they're demeaning you in a, in a way that they don't mean to. And I think similarly with this, because people don't want to ask real questions or allow it to be what it is, there's this kind of a glossing over of difference. I mean, I, agree, you know, I enjoyed your conversation with Richard Rodriguez, but I disagree with him on this whole question of diversity. He said diverse comes from divide. Well, we recognize the value of diversity in other spheres. I mean, biodiversity. We couldn't exist without biodiversity. I mean, those of you who are in the financial field, I'm sure, have preached the doctrine of the diversity in portfolio. Yeah. I mean, we understand the importance of that in other venues. Why, then, is it so shocking that diversity of opinion background is also important to the healthy functioning of societies? And I don't I, understand why that's such a hard concept. Yeah, I, you know, I think what he was getting at is that, um, yeah, is that sometimes that, that there's a flatness to the way we talk about celebrating diversity, which actually is about you know, saying, aren't we all wonderful, and don't we have so much in common, and in fact not getting at that richness and vividness and vitality of 
what makes us different? Well, I remember when I was a, when I was a, a White House correspondent, you know, back in the day, and we were flying. You know, first of all, I'll just apologize in advance because reporters have a sick sense of humor. That's just a fact. I'm sorry. So just letting you know in advance. And I remember we were flying over the Andes, and we were getting, you know, we were on our way to a Latin America swing. This is I, I covered the. George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, and I was in that press corps, and we were flying over the Andes, and we were having all kinds of turbulence, and so we were, you know, so reporters, sick sense of humor, they were talking about if the plane crashed, who would get the headline, and, you know, it would be, we said, oh, no, Leslie's, Leslie Stahl was in that press corps. She said, oh, Leslie's going to get the headline. I wonder if I'll get a paragraph and all this. But, but when the conversation got off the kind of the sick side of it, we started thinking about our skill sets, and one of, the reasons, one of the things we observed is that we had the skill sets to survive because some of us were, had been former Marines. Some of us, some, particularly some of the videographers, some of our camera operators were Marines, former Marines, and who had had survival training. And some of us had been trained in emergency medicine. Some of, I guess what I'm saying is even this rarefied group, the diversity of experience yeah. we realized would have helped us to survive. And that is how I would like us to think about this. Yeah. I would like us to think about the diversity of perspective and experience that would help us to survive. And then the biodiversity context. Yeah. May, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, I wonder, so one of the things you've done in your journalism at NPR and certainly on Tell Me More is to, to say that faith and family are huge topics at the center of your journalism. And I wonder um, how you respond to... The because you know I think in journalism these are considered to be soft and subjective and girly, well girly yeah even that. Um, how do you re- respond to that? How do you think about that? Don't care. <laughs> Brush it off, haters. <laughs> Don't care. Take a hike, haters. Go. Don't care. I just think that these things are so fundamental to the way we live that, that they deserve the seriousness that we impart to other topics. Yeah. And part of what I am trying to do is elevate is the wrong word because they don't need my elevation, but to allow us to discuss these things in a way that allows my values to come to the fore, which are facts, first of all. I'm in the fact-based side of journalism. Let me just put it this way. The people who are enemies-driven, who look for their enemy and then try to fire at that person, that is not me. I am in the fact-based side of the business, and I hope that all of us here are lifting up the fact-based side of journalism. And so, so what I try to do is impart facts to things that we have opinions about. Race is certainly one of those things, that, but there are knowable facts that I think a lot of people are, are now being acquainted with that you know, people have assumptions about. For example, I just did a book last week, about uh, a couple of weeks ago, about the long shadow and a very deep study of the life chances and trajectories of a large group of children in Baltimore over 25 years. Remarkable work. Half the subject sample black, half the subject sample white. And they destroy many of the myths that people have. Uh, The fact that, for example, that the white kids with a high school education only, the white boys with a high school education only, far more likely to be employed than the black boys with a high school education only. Why is that? Their social networks, their social networks allowed them to be employed. The fact that drug and alcohol use among the white kids was 
greater than that among the black kids. But it, drug and alcohol use had a far more deleterious impact on the employment opportunities for the black kids. So these are knowable facts. Mm-hmm. So even though I recognize after all these years in, in, in this business that a lot of people don't care what the facts are, I'm hoping that other people do. And that though my work is for them. And so, so it's knowable facts. And also to help us talk to each other about experiences that could be helpful to each other. I mean, one of the reasons I got very interested in the parenting conversation is that I look at all these parenting magazines. You know, when, you're, when you've got little kids, I don't know. If, you, if you've got little kids, you're, like, desperate for information about. But yeah. I found that so much of the conversation was how to get your kid to eat carrots. All right, well, once you've gotten your kid to eat carrots, what else is there? Yeah, right. But, but, but Book, I, reams and reams and books and volumes about, on how to get them to the sleep carrots. and how to get them to eat. Get the carrots. So yeah. it's, okay, now that we've got the carrots together, yeah. what happens when your kid goes out to the playing ground and somebody calls him the N-word? What, what, what are you going to do? What happens when you, your son is the only white boy on his basketball team and you know the kids on the other team are jealous because they want to play for that team because it's a good team and they think he's taking their spot and they rough him up in the locker room. What, what do you do? What do you do when you're, um, you've, te- you've, te- you've taught your children, use your words to uh, diffuse conflict and then you go to a sporting event and the other parents are, knock him down, knock him down. And you're like, oh wow, what do I do? <laughs> what? You know, that's kind of what I'm interested in and I didn't see a lot of that being discussed in these parenting magazine. So that's kind of what I wanted to talk about, the kinds of things that I think a lot of people are talking about, but bring in voices that they might not have access to. Yeah. Know? And, but the facts alone don't take us there either, right? It's like it, 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 the, cha- the, the parenting magazines need to think bigger and so does journalism as a discipline. And I mean, I think, you know, what you, you do is you, you, you work with facts and you also bring um, human voices of wisdom and experience because that rounds out the facts, right? I mean, the facts don't tell us the whole truth. Well, I think in part what you and I do is in part offer people a way to talk to each other Mm -hmm. that they might not have in their own lives. I can't tell you how many times I got letters from people who would say, I feel like I'm kind of standing at the window listening to a conversation Mm -hmm. and I want to join in, but I don't know how. And just as there are certain people telling us how to talk to each other, which is to basically yell at each other until the other person submits, I think part of what we're doing is showing people another way to talk to each other. And I'm hoping that people will draw inspiration and courage from that. If I hope I'm not being too grand, but I'm hoping what they will do is say to themselves, I can do that too. Because I'm sorry, I mean, I, you know, I love you to death, but this is not rocket science, what we're doing here. I mean, I love it. I know, it, I know, not, you know, I know. You can true. all do this. We're yeah. all quali- we are all qualified to do yeah. this, because I think all we're really doing is setting an example. And I'm hoping that other people will use our work to open the door to those conversations themselves. Yeah, so. I totally agree with you. We're, so. we're so formed, we have these few templates about how you discuss a difficult mm-hmm. issue. And yeah. it's a dead end, yeah. and we know how it will end. Yeah. But if you, you can start it with a different framing question, yeah. and you can have a completely different conversation. Well, like people talk about citizen journalism now. And citizen journalism, I think, is important. I appreciate it because we were talking last night at dinner. It was funny that these ladies asked me to um, take a picture of them. And 
they had a camera. I'm like, wow, a camera. I haven't used one of these in years. Where's your phone? I said, let me have your phone. And so, you know, so like the technology has allowed people to kind of take pictures of, of things that are happening and to make that journalism. And I appreciate the importance of that. I mean, starting with, you know, the Rodney King incident, that was citizen journalism and and on and on and on. But I would like, I think people can practice journalism in other ways. And the technology is not the relevant aspect of it. The relevant aspect of it is the question and the listening. Hmm. And anyone can do that. Yeah. I mean, here's something else that's... So one of the, one of the other things you do is you... Uh, it, it, because, you know, so again, what we're used to getting, especially from news, is... Uh, the extraordinarily terrible thing that happened today, right? Um, we get pictures of people frozen in the worst moment of their lives, and we get that same terrible picture 10 or 100 times, and then the move, news cycle moves on. I think what you've tried to cover and draw out is how people survive, flourish, grow, keep loving and laughing, which is also part of the story, right? Um, there is also this irony that, uh, you know, it's good news is not as riveting. I mean, good is not as riveting as evil. I mean, I say that, and, I, and I, as I say it, I think, you know, part of what I want to do is show that good can be as riveting and that you have to draw it out in a certain way. But you know what I'm talking about. There's this, there's this issue. There's this thing to work with. Well, I mean, tricky question for me because both things can be true. I mean, if, if you are a person in dire circumstance, then being noticed, that's the most important thing you can do for that person. I mean, mm-hmm. I think sometimes what we do as journalists is, if I could use this expression, a ministry of presence. Mm-hmm. What we are simply saying is, I see you. I mean, I know, for example, when, you know, when I was in Turkey, when I was working for Nightline, and I went to Turkey after there was a terrible earthquake there, and like you know, thousands of people were killed, and I was feeling really useless, um, <laughs> thinking, boy, I wish I were a doctor. I wish I were a structural engineer. I wish I could do something more useful. But then people would come up to me and say, thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. And I would feel... Wow, why are they thanking me? And then I thought, and I called my, it was, you know, what we do at a time like this, you know, I called my husband. (laughs) I really feel like so useless. What am I doing here? And he said, you are showing them that they exist. And I appreciated that because I've held on to that. It's like sometimes the best thing we can do for people is let them know that we see them. Mm -hmm. And so, so sometimes, you know, other people's bad news is, you know, their lifeline and letting them be understood. In fact, this is the very first story I did as a, as a, as when I was at the Post as a little baby reporter at the Washington Post. And I was sent out on the summer. It was one of those terrible stories that you hate to do because some little boy had fallen out the window of the projects yeah. and I had to knock on the woman's door to get a comment from her. And I kid you not, I walked around the block three times before I mustered the courage to knock on her door because I knew I had to. And I felt like, you know, and I knocked on the door and she, and I said, I'm so sorry. I'm from, I was working at the Washington Post at the time. I, I heard about your son. I came to get you to see if there was any, a comment that you had. And she said, where have you been? Mm-hmm. And because she felt that if someone from the media didn't come, then this was invisible and it had no meaning. And she had things she wanted to say, like, why weren't there any safety screens 
on the windows, which they were supposed to be. So I, I bring that up to say a lot of times, what, sometimes what middle class people see as intrusion, other people with no power see as validating their existence. Yeah. So both things need to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean... But, but you do, I mean, yes, we have to shine a light on that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate, one of the things I've appreciated about my work, particularly at NPR, is that it's a relationship. I mean, it's a relationship. I mean, I'm on, I was on the air every day, you know, Monday through Friday, every day. So it's a relationship with people. People tune in, um, sometimes just for company. They don't really yeah. care what's going on. They just want to hear what's What's up with you, you know? And, uh, and I respect that, and I appreciate that. I mean, it is our town square in, in some ways. I mean, the place that we are now, is, it's a very wonderful place. It's a very beautiful place. But we're, we are here at a time when we have the leisure and the opportunity to spend this time together. And I think part of what we do in the media is we are a bridge to people who are isolated for whatever reason. And I think we can be that connection I mean, I, I, like you, I'm disappointed that we don't often use that connection for better purpose. And, and, and you know, I continue to be puzzled by why that is. But, uh, you know, one has to be hopeful because, it, because you know, to, to rise in the morning is to have hope, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, guess, I guess what I'm saying, I mean, I think what you've done also is to draw out voices of hope. And, um, you know, I mean, let's just, I, I happened to be driving across the country when all the Trayvon Martin, I think at some point in, at one of the days in that, in that whole drama where it was on the news again. And, you know, you, you drew, you drew out people on every side of that human drama. Um, people who loved both Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman, for example, um, and, and I think that, you know, you, you actually, you actually delivered a sermon that I listened to online. I think you and we, we may be the only public radio hosts who've given sermons. <laughs> I don't know. I bet Ray, Ray Suarez has done a sermon somewhere too. Um, you talked about also the, the need, and, and, and I think you were speaking to journalism as well, but in our culture, the for the what now, what next question, right? So, so like even, even in, te- in telling that woman's story and just witnessing, being a bearing witness to her reality, uh, almost the moral challenge we have to also help ourselves and our listeners, our, our consumers of our, of our journalism, also see start looking towards hope beyond that moment and also maybe their place, their potential place in that. Well, I thank you for that. That is a, that is a high compliment. Uh, and so I thank you for that. You know, on the Trayvon story, I have to say that one of the things that um, I offer a challenge to white people who care about these issues to stop allowing themselves to be disappeared in this story hmm. And it happens time and time again. I interviewed the congresswoman, Karine Brown, who represents the district where this took place. And she is an African-American woman. And she told me that the first person 
to meet her at the airport to talk to her about this was a white parent in that neighborhood who was outraged about what had happened. And he met her at the airport when she came in for her district visit and said, you got to get on this. This is wrong. But somehow that voice has disappeared yeah. in that story. Yeah. And similarly, who were many of the witnesses who talked about what happened, who felt that you know, an injustice had been done? They were white parents in that neighborhood. And similarly, I remember I had a speaking engagement up at Syracuse, and it was a number of... It was, you know, ladies who lunch kind of thing. I don't know what it was. It was like a, a group of people. They were supporters of the public radio station. I remember a number of these people came up to me who were white. I'm saying that in air quotes. Whose grandchildren were black or who had kids who were biracial. Yeah. And they were saying, you know, this has really rocked my world. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, am I wrong to have given my nephew a sweatshirt for Christmas? Hmm. Am I, you know, and so... Why don't you see these voices in that story? Yeah. Why is it that, you, so, so my challenge is that when you have institutions that are failing, citizens must rise. And I feel that I would like that people who do not see themselves in these narratives to step forward and demand to be heard. Because the dynamic of the black people are over here mad and the white people are over here with George Zimmerman is simply not true. Yeah. Is simply not true. True, and I, you know, tried to interrupt that dynamic, that binary dynamic, which I know to be false. But you know, I'd like some help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm looking at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like that, and I, I like the idea of journalism in the 21st century being more. Interactive, which it yeah. is, except what have we done? We created comment sections which are full of vitriol, right? But, but interactive in a real way. I mean, you also, in your sermon, which was excellent, I think if you are looking for another career, you should think about that. Um, you said, you know, and, and here you're speaking to yourself, but you're also speaking to consumers of news. Maybe we could stop being bored with the stories of how hard things are. Keep paying attention when the, after the verdict is rendered and the story is no longer in the headlines. That's a challenge to all of us. Well, thank you for that. I didn't remember saying that, so I didn't remember that. It's kind of a blur when you're on every day, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, well, you know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question because, for example, I have never wanted my work to be seen as a repudiation of other people's work, like my no. colleagues, particularly yeah. people who do, like, the drive time shows, like the morning show and the afternoon show. They feel like it's their job to tell you the thing that you need to know right now. They feel that that's their job, right now, right now. And I just don't feel that way. I've never felt that that way. I mean, when I, before I went to NPR, when I was working at Nightline, at, you know, which is 1135, I mean, my colleague and my you know, mentor, Ted Koppel, I mean, one of the reasons he always wanted to be on at 1135 at night was that other people weren't fighting over that space. <laughs> so he could kind of put on the programming that he felt was most important. Mm-hmm. And so one of the reasons I like being on in midday is I, don't, I never felt that I had to do the one story that everybody feels they have to, the same story that they're doing over and over and over again. I never felt that I had to do that. And that's kind of my challenge is how do I cre- you know, recreate that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, and I, I mean, I think that, again, if we, if we think about what we're discussing here is how we um, need to reinvent and, and 
com, com, you know, make journalism more complete, get more of the complete story. I mean, I think that's, I think that's, what, that's how we think about what we do in our show, too. And <laughs> as the news cycle has sped up over these last 10 years, you know, we used to occasionally try to put something up on the satellite on Thursday that would still be hitting the news story on Sunday. And the world doesn't work that way anymore. No. You, you don't know what's going to happen, and, and, it, and it may have all moved on. But I agree. So, that, so we were kind of forced into this discipline of saying, um, we're, not going to ask, we're, we're not going to repeat asking the urgent questions of the moment, of the headlines, but say, you know, what, is, what are the questions that are left over after, after the news cycle moves onward? And because there are these big, enduring, unanswered, unexplored questions that are still with us from something like, Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman that we never that we haven't even begun to crack open. No, but I, you know I'm going back to something you said about the comment section. This is something that I struggle with because uh, people would be surprised by they might be surprised at how rarely a lot of us even read the comment section because mm-hmm. they're so stupid and mean. Yeah, and you know so it's there, but 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 I you know another idea would be for you know the not stupid mean people to comment on those things too. Yeah, you know that's another idea. You know, is that other people who have something of substance and elevating to say or want to contribute to a constructive dialogue, they could comment because I guarantee you these other people will get bored and move on to something, you know, else. It's it's a it's 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 interesting to me though how how often these sites get captured by the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And it's because everybody else gets chased out of the space. You mentioned that um, there we are among the few women uh, public radio you know, host, but we're also among the very few women podcasters. I mean, I looked at a survey of you know, how many people produce podcasts, and even though there are a number of prominent people like yourself, and then of course there's Terry Gross, you know, the overwhelming majority of people who are producing podcasts are white males, yeah. and an overwhelming number of them are comedians. Yeah. And so, you know... And so they're all about the same age. It's all about the same age. And, you know, I'm not mad yeah. at them, but what I am saying is, what if the rest of us decided we weren't going to tolerate that? We, weren't gonna, we were going to not allow ourselves to be chased out of the space. And I could certainly understand, particularly from the gender side of it, why women get chased out of the space, because some of the vitriol, some of the viciousness that's... You know, I, I mean, how many times people have told me I'm ugly and I look like a gorilla, and, oh, you... oh. Yes. Oh, yes. It's just, it's just, I mean, and we have a moderated site, you know, but so we can, we can invite some of these people to leave. But, but um, some of these unmoderated, it's it's amazing how just, you you, you say to these people, well, gee, I mean, is that all you have to do all day to sit there looking for people to be mean to? I mean, is that making you happy? But those, but, you know, we call them trolls, you know, in media, right? But what's been gratifying to me, though, is when, is particularly as the show is winding now, when people became aware of what was going on, how many people would chase them out of the site. They say, no, this is what I care about. This is what I think is important. This is what you're doing. So, so I understand that it's tiring and burdensome and sometimes it's distasteful, but what I'm wondering is what if the other people wouldn't allow themselves to be chased out of the site by these people? Mm-hmm. What if they were to say, no, actually, this is what I think is important. No, this is what I think you should be focusing on. Mm-hmm. So you have your marching orders. Yeah. I, <laughs> um, I want to open this up oh, yeah. to all of you in just a minute. Um, there's so many things I wanted to talk to you about. Um, well, I'm not going anywhere. I know, except <laughs> except they are this building. Yeah, that we true. have it. We have a I know, hard we're stop. in between. What is it, Yale Doctor? We're standing. That's right. Yale yeah. Doctor. Don't think I don't know. I understand what's going. That's fine. So I'm happy to keep you company. Yeah. Until- <laughs> 
you you wrote a, a, a piece that's gotten a lot of attention in the National Journal recently, mm-hmm. um, playing off the 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 piece by Anne Marie Slaughter, which got a lot of attention earlier, a few months ago. Um, that you know, um, this idea that women can have it all is just not true. And those of us who grew up in a world believing we could have it all, one day you wake up and you have children, you have a job, and you realize it wasn't true, and you still have to work this out for yourself. Um, and you pointed out that uh, even when we start to have that discussion, which is overdue, that it still ends up being a discussion not really about women, but about a certain class of privileged white women. Well, I, I was very... Um, it's interesting, because the National Journal asked me if I wanted to offer some reflections on this piece, and... Um, I didn't realize I had that much to say about it until I just started writing about it. Well, and you said, what did you say? You said, this is your version of King's letter from Birmingham jail. So tell me why that analogy, I mean, because Because that's a a big statement. It is a big statement, and I apologize if it sounds grandiose, because I don't mean it to. uh, But it was, because I felt like I had been in so many rooms where people kept talking about we this and we that, and they weren't talking about me. And I just felt, you know... And I was appreciative of the opportunity to, to say what I had to say. And again, it was not aimed at the mean, you know, racist people who don't want to hear it. It was aimed at the good people who are oblivious to yeah. other people's truths. And they're sitting right there. They're colleagues, people down the street. Mm-hmm. And I guess I want to say again that uh, here's what, honestly, you don't know what my real charge to people is. My real charge to people is look around and see who's missing. And try to invite that person. In any given moment, in any, in any given, given situation. Who's not here? Who's not here? Who's not here? And see, and, and I know, you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, I don't want people to be mean about it. Well, okay. So, <laughs> go on to the next person who's not mean and say, you know, I was thinking this group is a little narrow and would you, would you, you know, it, it's just amazing to me how, I mean, even people I'd worked with for years were oblivious to the very real differences between my life and theirs. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't think about it. I mean, things like, I mean, this is going to be small. This is not in the article because it's too stupid. But um, <laughs> the whole thing with, um, you know, weddings, you know, and who pays for whose weddings. You know, I'm supporting my elderly parents. They're not paying for my wedding. I mean, and it's not, it's a small thing, but when people go, oh, well, my mom wants this because, you know, they're paying for it. I'm like... Big problem, you know. It's yeah. just, it's, it, 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 I mean, it's small, yeah. but it's the kind of thing that just, and oh, oh, the whole thing with, you know, why do all the private schools have Grandparents Day? I know it's because they love, to, you know, to see you, but it's also because of the grand, you're paying their tuition. So, so, big difference. Yeah. Big difference in my life. I'm not whining and I'm not complaining. I'm not saying I'm not, I don't want people's pity, but I would like them to think about why people's lives are different than theirs. And if there's something that they could do to make a difference, then do it. Just do it. Just do it. Just stop talking about it. Just do it. You know, stop. Just do it. You know, like, for example, I'll give you an example. There was this woman, you know, the PepsiCo chairman, Indra Nui, there's a chairman of PepsiCo, and she gave this very attention. I'm sorry, I know you were waiting. I apologize. But there was a, 
she gave this talk at the Aspen Ideas Festival. It was got a lot of attention about her. You know, here she's this big executive of this Fortune 500 company, and she talked about how at her children's school they had all these coffees at nine o'clock in the morning on Wednesday, <laughs> but the working mothers couldn't go, and so and that made her sad. <laughs> Does this woman not write a check to these people? Yeah. I was thinking, what? And then she talked about how she'd called up, you know, some of the other mothers to find out who also didn't go. Why don't you call up the other mothers and say, hey, what? How about we switch it up so that sometimes you can go and sometimes we can go? How about you call that school and say, you know what? You have excluded an entire class of people who, oh, by the way, are writing the checks for your tuition. Right. So could you possibly, why don't you think about... Sometimes at 9 o'clock in the morning, sometimes at 6 o'clock when we can go. How about switching it up? You see my point? Yeah. So there's all this, like, I'm sad that this is this way. Okay, what is the one thing you could do to fix it? Go do that thing. Just go do that thing. That's good. Yeah. I like, I, like, I like how you bring the now what, so what, what then, what next question really down to earth. All right. Can, so let's... I'm getting advice from you. You're going to tell me. You're going to fix it. <laughs> You're going to make it better. <laughs> I think the first thing I'd like to say is thanks to both of you for many years of really thoughtful and intelligent hosting on NPR. Thank you. Thank you. What I found myself wondering as I was listening this afternoon is... The, the whole notion of allowing trolls to set the context and the tone for the conversation that follows. Reading comments can be enlightening and really useful. Ta-Nehisi Coates, who blogs for The Atlantic, does a great job with that. Mm-hmm. And he insists that only thoughtful and intelligent and, and polite conversation is allowed. You're in my house. You're having a conversation about the subject that I've raised you need to behave in a way that is reasonable and responsible. And why do we tolerate people not doing that? And why don't we enforce that much more strongly? Well, I think it's that um, it requires time and money because it requires somebody to moderate those spaces. And I think that a lot of people in our business feel that we're running so fast to catch up with the next thing that we don't, put the time and the effort into moderate those spaces. Honestly, it requires time. I understand. There are a lot of, I have a lot of friends who are journalists yeah. who are worried about work. There's yeah. really important work to be done. We just need to find a way to reward people for doing that work. And, if, you know, I understand something about the finances of journalism, but nonetheless, that's an important part of it. And it's something it that is. we ought to all be insisting be done. My local newspaper, one of them, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, has among the most horrible comment sections I have ever seen. And I don't know why that, you know what, it's disgusting to go to it. And we shouldn't have to put up with that. Well, the business model is a big part of it, and you're right. And I would welcome your um, insights into how that could be done differently. I mean, you've actually raised an idea for me, which is perhaps this is something that we should consider seeking grant support for to make it see yeah, if it makes a difference. I agree. Because you're right. I mean, um, in Charleston, West Virginia, we have an excellent um, shelter for physically abused um, women who, when, when they escape from the situation, they have a place to live and stay, and they get food and shelter and everything they need. They can bring their kids there until they can move on to the next part of their life. And um, the Today Show 
has a program where in once a year uh, Al Roker goes out with a truck and donates things that, that places like that need, that charities need. So they came, they interviewed uh, the director of this program, and multiple times she made it very clear that this was project was totally funded and developed and initiated by a group of Christian churches, Protestant churches, and the, the Jewish synagogue and the Jewish temple, okay? And, I mean, she said it multiple times. So when they showed the piece on this, no mention of Christ, no mention of Christianity, no mention of Judaism, no mention of religion in any way. And that, that was a fact. You know, I mean, this, it wasn't, she didn't make this up. That was a true fact. Why does mainstream media feel compelled to just leave that out of stories? I mean, I, I completely believe you, and I think it's the same reason something I talked about you know, earlier, which is this whole thing of, like, I don't see color. It's just like a phony politeness. Now, in, far, in part, I would say, I think it's because a lot of people who are kind of trained in a certain style of journalism have been led to believe that it's icky, and therefore, you know, you can't win and somebody's going to be mad, so you're looking for this false middle, right? Um, I will say I think that's it was a terrible editorial decision and I think that's the kind of thing that cries out for a person to call him up and say let me explain to you why that's a bad idea you know and this is why this matters you know not this is you missed a fundamental part of the story you missed a fundamental part of the truth of the the, the experience and I just think that people have been trained in a certain way and I think it's also unfortunate that a certain wing of Christendom has so captured public dialogue in the current era that people associate any kind of you know, religiously motivated experience with the bully boy wing. Yeah. You know? And I just think it's, I think it's a shame, and I'm sorry that happened, and I don't think it's too late, and I think that you should call them back. It's not. I think you call it. I have a question for both of you, really. It has to do with bubbles. Uh, within journalism, I know that there are pressures on you all to reinforce the bubbles rather than cut across them and burst them and create an open space. Can you talk a little about the nature of the pressures that you experience to do that? And particularly whether any of that might be involved in the cancellation of your show. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) I knew someone would bring it up. I did that on purpose just to avoid answering. Like she was saying, these are for guys. Yeah, they're... Have you lost the... Oh, okay. Anyway. Um, Anyway, go ahead. It's fine. I think it's fine. I'll just leave it here. Um, Do you want to... Well, I'm in in an unusual position because I have a weekly show, and um, I... We've kind of created our own thing, but, you know... I mean, what I want to say is that if I hadn't raised the money to do that all along, 
it wouldn't be on the air. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's right. more complicated than you know. I I, I, I have a I have a I have a luxurious place where we've kind of burst out of that, but it's also put on it low listening times on public radio stations, which is why God invented podcasting. And um, again, if I had not raised every dollar all these years, it would have been taken off the air. Well, I think you're right, which is why... um, Yeah, I I think that Krista's right about that. I mean, the economics of my program a little different because, A, it was a daily show, five days a week, an hour. And you didn't control the economics of your show. Did not control the economics of it. And also, we were uh, news-inspired, but not news-driven. So we saw it as a mandate because of the time of day that we were on to, in part, to be responsive to news, broadly defined. The way I saw it is I was kind of responding to the news, but also opening up things that would not necessarily have been opened up in other venues, which, of course, then other people followed, you know, which I was always, like, amazed. Like, there was a story that was on the website today, which I did, you know, three weeks ago, which I'm like, okay, fine. But, but, how can I say, let me put this in a, in a way, in a positive way. The business, we, we don't to have to put out, everything on the air. Well, so we can. have to put, I mean, we have to figure out the business side of this. We have yeah. to figure out the business side of this because, because, um, we have to have countervailing voices. I mean, it is a fact that people with a very a distinct sort of political persuasion are very interested in buying media properties now, and that is not coincidental. And so I think that people who have other points of view or who are interested in having other points of view be heard, not because they want to dictate to people, but because we need, as I've mentioned, I think we all agree, the full range of opinions... Um, to be heard and ideas to be heard because that's how we thrive as, as a people, as all people, really. I mean, you look at the People's Republic of China now and you see that all of these terrible situations that are occurring, it's, not, it's in part because there is no free media. I mean, yeah. they, they have an active business environment, but there is no free information. And you know, we, we don't want this for ourselves. And so we need to have a variety of voices. And those of you who have business acumen, I mean, you could do worse than attend to this problem. And I would appreciate it. <laughs> Very much. Yeah, well, and you know, I want to. One of the things that, um, that some of the leadership at NPR said, and that was repeated in the New York Times when Tell Me More was canceled, was diversity has to make sense in the business context. I was really annoyed by that. Yeah. And, but again, you know what it gets at? It was at? my CEO, but I was really annoyed yeah. by that. The new CEO. I mean, I, I just, I don't know what he, I, I, here's what I will say about that. I don't think he is well acquainted enough with the facts. Well, yeah. He is, and because he, he was not, it was the, the new CEO, he was not there when the decision was made, and I don't think he is well acquainted enough with the circumstances, and perhaps he, had he been, would have made a different decision, but he didn't take, he, my show was canceled May 21, he was appointed July 1, yeah. so there it is, but yeah. I just don't think. Yeah. Um, but also it makes me think about this, what you've been saying repeatedly today, that we, we've decided that we don't want to see race, that we won't see race, for all these reasons. Um, but the minute I think you say something is about diversity, which again I think is—I don't think that's what your show was about. I think it was—it was a big picture of life. Um, you know, then you 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 pigeonhole it in a way that is that doesn't help the business model. Well, you know, this is a complicated thing because you know the, the you know NPR is a content provider and the stations are the distribution platform yeah. and you know. 
you can tell people all day long, did you know that your market is X and they have no one on the air that speaks to that market, yeah. but they are, they're more afraid of the eight people who would write in mad than the 25 who would be happy. So, you know, there are a lot of things that, yeah. that we could do differently. Yeah, I, I think you've answered my question, which was basically what I heard was that uh, your program was canceled because it didn't provide enough income to the network. And uh, it, you know, I always felt that NPR was trying to uphold the very best principles in broadcasting. And if diversity is an issue for our country, why in the world would they cut out your program, which was aimed for a particular audience, but informed many, many other you know, segments of society? And that really bothered me. Me too. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, yeah, we have time too. for um, t- t- our two more questions. Okay. okay. First, I think you're both national treasures. Thank you. And I was <laughs> extremely disappointed personally when I learned, Michelle, about your program being canceled. Um, what I'm wondering is to look forward in the broader realm of journalism. Um, it's going through a lot of changes. It's messy. It's crummy when it makes some of the kinds of decisions it made recently. Um, What would be your hopes with the tinge of reality in terms of if there are some positive possibilities for journalism as it goes through this messy transformation? What do you see as possible that might come out of it in the future? Well, I I will say... One of the things that, on, on the, in the near term, the disappointing note, and I, and I will I will not end on a disappointed note, but on the disappointed note is that there are a number of new media outlets, which are even less diverse than the old media outlets. I mean, this is this is very disturbing to me. I mean, there have been a number of new media enterprises that have gotten a lot of attention of late, and there are very few women involved, let alone people of color involved. And I think this, again, has to do with networks. Like, who are their networks? Like, the networks of people who are funding them and the networks of people who, you know, they... And, and I just think that can't continue. And this is the kind of thing where I, I, I would ask people to, to use their voices in the audience to say, not acceptable. I mean, it can't just be me, right? I can't just be like... You know, it's got to be the audience broadly defined saying, this is not acceptable, this is not what we expect, and you need to do better, because I guarantee you they will. Um, I am hopeful because, as I said, to um, to get up in the morning is to be hopeful, and that b- b- I see enough of an appetite for the kind of work that we do that my feeling is that if we can f- get a couple of the pieces right, then we can change the paradigm. I mean, I applaud you for not just your work as a host, because I think that terribly important, but for also figuring out how to create a sustainable model. And I think that that is under-discussed. I think women who are creating new business models have to be applauded for that as well as for the content. I mean, we've done a lot with the content, but the business model is what's broken. And so I applaud you for that. And I think that that's at least in part what you should have gotten the medal for. So (laughs) My business model. Business model. But... um, because people who, when we change the structures, we change what's possible. I mean, why does a place like this exist? Because somebody needed, people had the idea of creating a structure where different things can happen. 
and you created who, the people who created this and then revise it over time. And so that, to me, is what needs to happen in our field. And I'm hopeful that people, we will, we will figure that out. You know, I was at a, a conference at the museum earlier this year. I just want to mention it because there were some hopeful things um, that relate to wh- what we're talking about here. One is journalists really woke up very late, or, or editors, newspapers, mm-hmm. woke up very late to the fact that when the Internet came along, they just created these comments section which were anonymous and which didn't actually assume that the consumers of news were, were participants in the process of being an informed society. And, and there was a realization also that, uh, that, uh, where, that one of the things the Internet has changed was that whereas it used to be that the day you published your piece, you know, your piece of investigative journalism or, you know, your, your article or your your essay on the radio, whatever. Um, that was the day the story ended and you moved on to the next story. But journalists themselves are having to wake up to this reality. I mean, what Michelle is talking about, about, you know, the story started the day you heard it, the day you read it in the newspaper. And there is now this culture where you get to participate and, you know, there, there's a way to talk to the journalists and, and keep that moving and keep it get, get, getting bigger. And so I think... Again, I think that you know, citizen journalism, which also includes the place of citizen consumers of journalism in the process, has got to be part of the hope for the future. Um, thank you for taking my question. It's harder for women to seem to rush up to the podium. So true. <laughs> I was really glad to see a few women in the back of that line. Thank you. Um, Thank you. You've really inspired me to re-energize and push. I have a podcast series, Policy Pace, with PhDs, like real scholars, not philosophies of scholars. And I really appreciate that. And um, I just want to say something about the comment section. I read the comment section because it helps me know why election results are what they are. Um, Because the minority of us are eloquent, highly educated. And I hope those voices won't get get cut out, the one, the name callers, whatever, because those are their feelings. But my question is, considering NPR is considered liberal um, media, what diversity do you think is missing from NPR that should be there to really fully inform with a broader scope of what our real society is? Mm, well, the audience is really not liberal. I mean, it's the audience surveys have demonstrated consistently over time. It's literally one-third, one-third, one-third. One-third self-identified conservative, one-third self-identified liberal, one-third self-identified moderate, and that's been true for 10 years. So that's not true. I know that there are people who would like it to be true because they want to beat NPR with the ugly stick, you know, for their own market reasons, and I just refuse to play. I'm just saying... You know, I mean, I've, look, I've covered, I've, I've covered every, you know, convention since, you know, I was, and, you know, I've had people say everything to me, you know, like, um, but um, I just say, well, you know, that's your story, but it happens not to be true, and you can like your story better, but it's not true. So um, I think, you know, obviously I'm very disappointed about canceling my program. I've not made a secret of that, and I don't see why I should. Um, but I feel that, and I think that there will be a void until they figure out how to fix it. I mean, I am staying at NPR. I mean, I have to say that. We are starting something called an identity and culture unit. It's going to fold in 
Code Switch, and which is a group of bloggers that's going to fold in Michelle Norris's Race Card Project, which I think a, some, a lot of you have become familiar with. It's really very interesting. And she, she started this during the uh, 2012 election, I think, or 2000, I'm going to forget, one of the elections with Steve Inskeep from Morning Edition, and they asked people to write reflections on race in six words or less. And then they would go, it's really interesting, talk about creating a new form. So the race card project, you know, which comes out of the obvious phrase, oh, you're playing the race card. She's like, yeah. okay, well, let's play, you know. And so she's doing that. And then she goes back and interviews people about the story behind those six words. And, and so she's been doing that. And, you know, I'll be contributing to other programs. And we'll see. I mean, my, I, you know, my attitude is I will hold them accountable, and I hope you will as well. And do that thing, you know. Okay. I just want to ask you two quick questions before we finish. Um, can, I, can I just say thank you to you for inviting me and yeah. <laughs> being my friend? And thank you. Well, I'm so happy to have you here. I've, you know, we, we talked, we, actually, we tried to get together and have a meal, yeah. and that didn't work, so yeah. I had to get you to yeah, talk over right. it. <laughs> you were down the street. Sorry, That's I can't right. come to yeah. um, I, I wonder, as you have... Um, pursued the stories that aren't told, as you've interviewed so many different kinds of people about so many aspects of life these last years? This is a big question, but how, how has this shaped, evolved, the, the way you think about what it means to be human? I know it's huge, but what comes to mind? It, you know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting that uh, one of my... Um, Mentors, you know, Ted Koppel told me that, that, you know, the more famous he got, the more humble he got. Because, you know, he's, he, he, you may or may not know this about him. I don't think he'd mind my telling you this, that he was actually quite a fiery young man. He was kind of a spicy young man who would, like, he'd throw hands over a parking space. I mean, he was just an angry young guy. I mean, I think he's written about this, so hopefully I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But uh, that era has long since passed, and he quoted that, that when he got older and became more famous and people were just so nice to him just for existing, he mm-hmm. found it really hard to be angry or, you know, to, to be so caught up in something so petty seems so wrong. And uh, I, I was never that way, I'll just be honest. I, but but the, the more you get to know people and the more they trust you to tell their stories to you, they, they, it's like a gift. Every time somebody tells me their story, I feel that they have given me something precious. And it's my job to protect it. And, I, and that cannot help but change you. And, um, you know, you wrote me another beautiful note. You know, I think some people know this. After my brother died, he yeah. took his own life. Um, very, very hard. And very he had hard. been a responder He'd been a after 9-11. And, you know, I... Um, had to learn a lot about that brought me into a community of people that I had not been part of before. And, you know, there is no why. There is a why, but the why doesn't really matter. You know, he's my brother and I loved him and he's not here. But it brought me into connection with so many people who had had that experience that all I can say is thank you because they gave me that gift of connection and not leaving me alone in my pain. And so 
I think I would say that um, really what I'm left with is gratitude, such profound gratitude that people, despite all of their pain and all of what people go through, are still willing to reach out to each other. And um, that's, I don't know if I've answered your question, but I feel that it's just made my world so much larger. And I hope that I've done just this much to make the world larger for other people. Hmm. Thank you.